Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. <clears throat> we uh, are under special provisions today uh, because of the uh, uh, security for our uh, first witness today. There's, I want to remind everyone that there'll be no camera use and no cell phone use during this hearing. Uh, this will be strictly enforced by uh, the security that's here and by staff of the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, we'd uh, ask everyone to keep that in mind and respect the, uh, uh, the security of the individual that uh, we've asked uh, to testify here today. Uh, this month we marked the solemn ninth anniversary of the Syrian conflict, nine years of barrel bombs and chemical weapons, nine years of targeted attacks against medical and humanitarian workers, nine years of the most horrific human rights atrocities of our time. Make no mistake, accountability for these crimes lays squarely on the shoulders of Syria's brutal dictator Bashar al-Assad and his Russian and Iranian backers as well as Le Lebanese Hezbollah. Assad has weaponized every facet of the Syrian government against his uh, own people on an industrial scale. Over 560,000 people have been killed. Over 100,000 Syrians have perished in Assad's notorious prisons, and Americans, including Austin Tice, have been wrongfully detained. Today, we reiterate the demand for his immediate release and return. For too many young Syrians, war and suffering is all they have ever known. Together with their parents, they suffer the physical and mental wounds of prolonged warfare. Those who left as refugees risk arbitrary arrest, interrogation, and torture by the regime's secret police upon their return. The conflict has now entered an intensified stage with Assad, Russia, and Iran mounting a brutal and continuous offensive against Syria's last remaining opposition stronghold, Idlib. More than 960,000 civilians have been newly displaced since December, many of whom fled other parts of Syria and now find themselves caught in a death trap. Beyond the onslaught of tanks and bombs and other weapons of war, they face the immediate risk of freezing to death during a brutal winter without access to adequate shelter and food. Russia behaves as both an arsonist and a firefighter. Putin pours gasoline on the flames of conflict while simultaneously seeking a seat at the table by holding sham talks in Astana. The UN recently confirmed that we had already, what we have already suspected, that Russia, in addition to Assad, is committing more crimes in Syria. Russian planes are carrying out attacks in order to kill first responders and bomb hospitals to destruction. It's clear that the Russian government has no interest in bringing peace or helping the Syrian people, but sees the conflict as a way to grow its geopolitical importance. Russia's quest for, re uh, for relevance is killing Syrians. Iran, which continues to flood Syria with fighters, is no better. This cannot go on. The Syrian people deserve better, much better. We remain committed to the Geneva-brokered peace process. UN Security Council Resolution 2254 remains our guidepost. A complete ceasefire, a Syrian-led political process, a new constitution drafted by Syrians, and free and fair elections. I was pleased to see the UN Constitutional Committee convene, even if the regime has resisted the committee's work at every turn. Assad is not serious about peace. He benefits from the status quo and will stop at nothing to remain in power. A deeply fractured Syria will never heal. 
absent accountability and reconciliation. The regime and its supporters must be held accountable for the atrocities they've perpetrated. This is precisely why we championed the Syria, excuse me, the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act, which authorizes sanctions against the Assad regime and its backers. It has been a long road to get here. I was proud to sponsor this legislation as a standalone bill last year and to pass it out of uh, committee. It was hard work to get it included in last year's annual defense bill, but we prevailed and it is now law. We are greatly honored to have the namesake for this bill here with us today. What began with one man's courageous effort to expose Assad's atrocities has become the means by which we will hold Assad and his backers accountable. As with any law, implementation is the key. We are working closely with the administration to ensure that the Caesar Act is full, fully implemented and impunity is ended. In the face of such depravity and destruction, the strength and resilience of the Syrian people gives me hope. Our witnesses today are remarkable examples of human bravery and grit. They have endured immeasurable suffering, yet continue to work tirelessly to end impunity and protect the innocent. As we proceed today with the hearing, uh, we're going to uh, go without cameras of any kind and uh, without cell phones. There'll be no recording. Uh, this is at the request of uh, our witness, and uh, the, uh, that request is well taken, and uh, we are going to honor it. Uh, what uh, will happen is uh, there will be a transcript made of his testimony, which will be available uh, shortly after the hearing. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, Senator Menendez, for your opening remarks, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for uh, holding this hearing to commemorate and to try to grapple with the horrific atrocities the Assad regime with its Russian and Iranian backers is perpetrating against innocent people in Syria. Our witnesses today have literally risked their lives to bear witness to crimes against humanity, to expose the barbarity of a dictator who for almost a decade has fomented a reign of fear, repression, and torture against his own citizens. A ruthless leader who has not only cooperated with terrorists to incite violence, who has murdered innocent civilians in cold blood, but who has barbarously bombed hospitals and medical workers to prevent them from providing relief. Your courageous acts, Caesar, ensure that the world can and must hold the Assad regime and its Russian and Iranian backers accountable for their crimes. Your continued efforts to provide relief to the millions who need it remind us that we must continue to press for a political solution and to provide for those in immediate need. Nine years ago, nine years ago, peaceful demonstrators took to the streets to demand change and accountability from their government. Their calls for democratic reform were met with a vicious response that has turned into a brutal, devastating campaign. We know the numbers. More than half a million innocent people killed. Millions and millions forcibly displaced from their homes. Many fleeing multiple times from the places in which they sought refuge. Last month, headlines screamed about the hundreds of thousands of innocent people fleeing for their lives in Idlib. 
people burning doors they had ripped from the hinges of their homes to stay warm, babies who survived targeted bombing campaigns only to freeze to death in their parents' arms. And yet the world seems paralyzed to act. We talk of humanitarian relief, and Russia and Turkey continue to calculate the implementation of yet another quote-unquote ceasefire. But we need serious leadership and commitment. As Riad says in his written testimony, quote, what is needed is the political will to act to protect civilians. Unfortunately, for nine years, the United States has not displayed that political will. American efforts at promoting a political process in the early years of the conflict were overwhelmed by more invested Russian, Iranian, and Turkish governments. Facing little more than rhetorical pushback and calling support from terrorists and Russian air power alike, the Assad regime has pushed forward with its atrocities. Following the withdrawal of U.S. troops last year, Turkey stepped up its military involvement, pouring more fuel onto a raging fire and undermining our ability to respond. Over the years, this committee and Congress as a whole have taken a number of steps to encourage both this administration and the last to make a clearly assert American leadership and standing with the Syrian people. From authorizing a range of diplomatic and military tools, to an AUMF in the face of the regime's first chemical weapons attack, to support for humanitarian assistance and refugee programs. Unfortunately, we have not seen assertive policies from either of the past two administrations. However, inaction itself is a decision, one that carries consequences. The administration must make some decisions now. Will and how will they work to protect civilians to ensure that they receive critical humanitarian aid? While Ambassadors Jeffrey and Kraft's visit to Idlib sends an important message that we are not totally deaf to the cries of civilians in desperate need, we must ensure that aid can be delivered, including a strategy at the UN to renew critical border crossing access for humanitarian operators. And on the questions of accountability, the administration must rigorously implement the Caesar Civilian Protection Act. It must commit resources holding the Assad regime and Russian and Iranian facilitators accountable for their crimes against humanity. We must find a way to support the millions of refugees and displaced people in Syria, but being a leader also requires setting an example. The administration has destroyed this country's rich history of serving as a beacon of hope and light to all those oppressed. And when we close our doors, we not only turn our backs to those in need, we send a global message that it's acceptable to do so as well. Our witnesses here, of course, cannot answer these questions. They have done extraordinary things, from exposing the regime's barbarity to ensuring that same barbarity and living to talk about it, to, I mean, to enduring, I should say, that same barbarity and living to talk about it, to rushing towards the scene of an airstrike to save lives. But they cannot change U.S. policy. I hope, however, their powerful testimonies will compel us to do more. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. <clears throat> We're now going to turn to our first witness, Caesar. Uh, for those of you in the room, you can see the photos displayed from the Caesar file and recent photographs from Idlib province. These are just a few of the thousands of images, thousands of images that Caesar smuggled out of Syria to show the true brutality of the uh, Syrian regime. 
Caesar is a Syrian military defector and former military police photographer who smuggled out almost 55,000 photos of detainees who were tortured and executed in Assad regime intelligence branches and prisons. Caesar is the namesake of the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act. He continues to be a key witness to prosecutions against war criminals within the Assad regime as well as a voice of conscience on behalf of the hundreds of thousands who remain detained by the Assad regime. Caesar, we're honored uh, to have you with us today. Now we're going to take just a moment to turn the cameras off for Caesar's testimony and uh, thank you all for attending today. Civilians live in fear of the horror of the regime, Russia and Iran. During the humanitarian disaster in Idlib, we cannot forget why so many people have come to this disparate place to evade the very same detention I faced for over three years. When the regime advances and takes another village, those cities become like cities of ghosts. Innocent men, women, and children either die, flee, or end up in detention centers like me. <coughs> what I'm going to tell you in the coming few minutes is a story. True story. My father left me at a broadest on the street of my hometown, Banyas. In March, 18th of 2011. Before he departed, he whispered a few words in my ears. Guess what it was? I had participated in the demonstrations and only for asking for freedom, I was arrested. And I was tortured. I was confused, I didn't understand why they arrested me. I was 15 years old. Don't really understand the situation and what's going on. And I was as like every other kid on this planet. They think police is like somebody who protects you. That's what my thought about the police, even in Syria. Especially that my father was an officer. He retired in 2009, but still, still for me, it was my dad was an officer. He protected me, that, and that's what should, the police should do. In prison, they tortured me. And my torture forced me to say that I have killed, I had weapons. But they didn't come that easy. He had to pull out my fingernails out of my fingers first before I give this false confession. I was only 15 years old when the guard opened scarred in my body. I was only 15 years old when my life experience became nearly too much to bear. I was only 15 years old when I wished to die. I remember one good thing from prison. One month, something was different. I didn't know what's going on, but we get less torture, we get more food, and the guards is not screaming anymore. They're not coming, they're not burning our bodies with their cigarettes. They're giving us one full potato instead for half one. When I got out of prison, I tried to match what happened in this day 
in this month, when I was in prison and I got more food than usually, what happened outside? It was when Caesar pictures being released. Everybody around the world talking about prisoners and what's going on in Syria's prison. That's why we have to speak. That's why we have to do anything, even just write on Twitter or talk or have a testimony. This testimony gives hope for a lot of people. I just published yesterday on social media that I'm going to be testifying together with Caesar and Rod, and people was too kind. Those who say it's amazing, something may happen, they may help us doing something. And other people who say that happened before, they know more than what you know about your own experience. They're not going to change anything. Let's show them the opposite. I remember one Tuesday, that beautiful Tuesday, when I was in Sydney prison. It was the 9th of June, 2015. I already been in prison in three years and experienced all kind of torture, and I was starving. But the guard opened the door, and he said, Omar. The only time they say your name in Sydney prison is when they're going to kill you. They took me from my room. They killed somebody who was next to me, asked me to pull him outside of the room. I pulled this body out. I looked at his face. It was my best friend at that time. The guards took me, isolated me in room for 48 hours. And every single hour, day and night, when the watch of the guard beep, he comes and asks me a question. How do you want me to kill you? Be creative. I was forced to give 68 answers instead for 48 because not all of them was nice or good enough for him to enjoy killing me. After 48 hours, they pulled me out of the room, took me in the car, blindfolded my eyes, my hands tied behind me, and they put me in the street facing the ground. The officer is walking slowly behind me, and I'm scared. Because I don't want to see how they're going to kill me. I don't know. He walks, talks about my death, then he just got silent. And load, aim. Didn't go that quickly. It took a billion years for me to feel between load and aim. It takes so long time. Then he said, shoot, poof. And I died. For the first time, I never died before. I don't know how it feels or what's going to happen. Have any of you died before and can explain how it feels to die? I didn't. So I was just thinking, wow, finally to after life. I woke up still alive. Didn't know what happened. The guy they killed in the room when they come to take me was a guy who was supposed to be released. They killed him. They put my name on his face. And they took me outside of prison because it was my day to be executed. Took me outside of prison with his name because my mother paid $20,000 to an officer to get me out of prison. She didn't know how, but my mom wanted me to be alive after that they killed my father and my siblings in attack on our village in Syria. When the regime takes an area, people should, will die, flee, or get arrested. That's what happened to them on the Guerrillas. What I mentioned just was the mental torture you experience by the same regime. I didn't talk about the physical because it's not going to help you understand. Because the physical torture, you don't understand it if you don't experience it. So what's waiting 
people in Idlib is the same thing if we don't help them. The people of Syria are suffering. They may be used to pain, but it's not pain who breaks people. It's fear. They fear not being able to feed their children. They fear being arrested, captured, and tortured to death. It's not torture who's the worst. It's waiting torture the worst. Sometimes it seems impossible to help these people, but as Nelson Mandela said, it always seems impossible until it's done. We have to do something. And I want to conclude by quoting your, the words of your own president when he said, Assad is an animal. I hope you all agree with him. I do. Thank you. It's powerful testimony, uh, Mr. El Shagri. Thank you. We'll have some questions for you in a moment. We're going to turn now uh, to our second witness, uh, Mr. Raid uh, El Salih. Mr. El Salih is the head of the Syrian Civil Defense, more commonly known as the White Helmets. He manages uh, his uh, this network of over 2,800 volunteers who have saved over 120,000 lives in Syria. He is originally from Idlib, and he's a father of two. Uh, Mr. Uh, El Salih, the floor is yours. How do you say that? <laughs> أولاً شكراً جزيلاً لإتاحة الفرصة للحديث عن الوضع بإدلب. First of all, thank you for giving us this opportunity to talk about what's happening in Idlib. حقيقة ما قدموا قيصر وأخي عمر هو بلخص كل معاناة الشعب السوري ولكن أنا راح أتحدث من what was said by both Caesar and Omar gives a very harrowing glimpse of the horrors that are faced by the Syrian people, but I will speak about a different uh, perspective. My name is Raid al-Saleh. I am the head of the Syria Civil Defense, popularly known as the White Helmets. This organization of 2,500 men and 300 women who have dedicated their lives to saving others. When the bombs rained down, we rushed to dig lives from under the rubble. Since our formation in 2013, we have saved more than 120,000 lives in Syria. 282 volunteers have been killed in the line of duty, deliberately targeted by the Syrian regime and Russia. We rescue people regardless of their ethnicity, religion, gender, or politics. We have rescued our own family members, complete strangers, and even Assad regime soldiers. Our motto and inspiration comes from the universal teaching found in the Quran that reads, whoever saves one life, it is as if they have saved all of humanity. Yet for all the lives we have saved, death is beating us. For every Syrian that we've saved, there are five that we've lost. If only we could stop the bombs, we could save almost every single one. I'm here today to convey the voices of the millions of civilians in Idlib who wake up every day fearing death. Idlib, once an idyllic rural province known for its olives and cherries, has been turned into hell on earth. 
Since Russia's intervention in 2015, the number of internally displaced people has doubled to 8 million. The relentless aerial bombardment and use of siege to retake areas like Aleppo and eastern Ghouta has forced millions to evacuate to Idlib. Now there isn't another Idlib, nowhere else left to flee to, and so nearly 4 million civilians are trapped. The area is roughly the size of the state of Rhode Island. Its pre-war population of 300,000 has increased by more than tenfold. Since the beginning of the Idlib offensive, the Assad regime, backed by Russian air power and Iranian proxy militias, has launched a systematic campaign targeting all civilian infrastructure. Water points, hospitals, white helmet centers, food markets, schools and bakeries have all been targeted and bombed. Nearly everything that can help civilians survive has been destroyed and the vast majority of people are struggling to access basic shelter, food and medicine. I was in Idlib just weeks ago. There are no words to describe the apocalyptic horrors I witnessed there. Numbers are no longer useful as the horror cannot be quantified. So I will tell you a story. I saw a father in Idlib standing on the side of the road with a sign reading, I will sell my kidney for a tent. Can you imagine being so desperate to just provide shelter for your family? I did not come here to talk about humanitarian needs. Senators, I want to be very clear in this hallowed institution. What is happening in Syria is not an earthquake or hurricane that can be solved with humanitarian aid funding. No amount of money can stop a single barrel bomb falling over a child's bed. No amount of money can return a single displaced family to their home. We deeply appreciate the U.S. government's support to the White Helmets and urge your support in making sure the Syrian people's needs are met. But more funding to us will not solve the problem either. The ambulances we purchase with your funding are being pursued by Russian drones and deliberately bombed. Russia has destroyed millions of dollars worth of our U.S.-funded equipment. When you give us more money, what you are telling us is that you will not stop the atrocities and that instead we must purchase more ambulances to transport more injured civilians, order new cranes to lift collapsed concrete crushing entire families, and buy more protective clothing to deal with chemical attacks. Raising funds to alleviate the suffering does not work any better than giving painkillers to a cancer patient. What is needed is the political will to act to protect civilians. The overwhelming majority of the suffering results from one cause, the absolute impunity with which the Syrian regime and Russia bomb civilians from the sky. Yes, we have other evils too. The thousands of Iranian proxy forces known for their sectarian brutality and other extremist groups who have similarly terrorized civilians. But it is the unimpeded aerial bombardment which is the primary cause of death, destruction, and displacement of civilians. The aerial bombardment is the primary cause of the refugee exodus to Europe, which has empowered far-right parties. The aerial bombardment and the West's unwillingness to stop it is the primary recruitment tool for ISIS and terrorist groups. So today I ask you to use your power to end the root cause of all this suffering by taking real action to clear the skies above Syria. Since 2011, we have been told all the reasons why intervention to protect civilians is impossible. 
But who has considered the consequences of not acting? The consequences of the world's inaction cannot be confined to Syria's borders. Meeting the most basic humanitarian needs will cost billions a month. Millions more refugees will flee, to, will flee Syria to Europe's safer shores. No border wall can contain them. An entire generation of children will be left uneducated. Extremist groups will ferment in the chaos, necessitating future global coalitions and trillions of dollars to defeat new threats. Does this sound more possible? Does this cost sound more uh, reasonable than acting to stop the atrocities being committed now? Turkey's intervention last month shattered the myth that the use of force to stop hostilities might cause further escalation. In fact, the opposite happened. After Turkey's brief military intervention last week, there was a complete stop in aerial attacks. But Turkey cannot do this alone. It needs your support and leadership. The enforcement of a national ceasefire by all means necessary will create the conditions for real internationally backed peace talks, including accountability for all perpetrators of mass atrocities and war crimes. For I still believe in the values that the Syrian revolution called for in March 2011, the values of democracy practiced in this building every day and which can be practiced in Syria too. With support of people around the world, we Syrians can rebuild our country into a free, peaceful, democratic Syria that operates beyond the evils of the regime and extremists. I do not wish to sit here in 2025 detailing the suffering of yet another unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe in Syria. To speak of several hundred thousand more lives lost, the millions still without a home, and paying tribute to hundreds more white helmets who will have been killed saving lives. As we enter the 10th year of war, the world has run out of words. Now is the time for action. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, both of you have given very powerful testimony to our committee. Senator Menendez, did you? Uh... Uh, well, Mr. Chairman, I, I have to say that um, questions uh, are not valuable. Uh, when you hear the testimony of Mr. Ashwari, who is extraordinary and at such a young age to have to recount it so many times and relive it. And Mr. Asala's uh, tremendous work with the White Helmets. You know, I, I think uh, I sat here as the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee at a time and we approved an AUMF to uh, stop Assad when he was using chemical weapons. And it had a limited value because it was only pursued to give up those weapons that we knew at the time. Uh, I passed legislation to help the then uh, Syrian forces that we thought, independent Syrian forces that we thought, uh, could uh, ultimately change the tide in their own country. Uh, at this point, I, don't, I, I hope that your testimony and Caesar's testimony before you <coughs> pricks the conscience of this nation. There are some things that we can do we can immediately seek implementation of the Caesar Act and begin to create a consequence for those who are committing these horrific acts. What more testimony do we need? What more visualization do we need? We can do something like over the administration changing its decision to zero out the resettlement of Syrian refugees to the United States. 
refugees who are the most heavily vetted of any group that may come to the United States. Tomorrow, the Trump administration could uh, start a Syrian refugee settlement as a message to the world that we need to take care of those who are fleeing. And tomorrow, we could start an effort uh, of a surge in international efforts to hold those accountable and to seek a true ceasefire and an implementation of it. These are things that take political will. It is a will that has not been forthcoming from our country, and it's not unique to this administration either. So I hope that this testimony that is riveting, I could ask you about assistance from humanitarian organizations. I could ask you about what else we could do, but you've said it so aptly. Giving me more money to buy more ambulances that will get bombed by the Russians is not going to solve the horrific uh, violence. So uh, for myself, uh, I will seek to find ways in which we can prick the conscience of our colleagues and of this administration and of others uh, who can ultimately cast a garish light upon those, these horrific uh, acts of violence and to seek a movement that begins to change the course of events, because that's what we ultimately seek to serve for, it's to change the course of events for the better, both at here and abroad. And uh, I appreciate your testimony in that regard. I have no questions for you. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Senator Perdue. Well, to say that um, sitting in this moment of luxury and safety here in the United States Capitol, um, that we're chagrined and, and hard by what you've told us today would not do you honor. Um, I do have a question. I want to allow you to speak more um, about this. I agree with Senator Menendez. This is not about American politics. This is about human life in Syria. Um, what you went through, Omar, as a 15-year-old um, shocks me. And I want to thank you for being here and having the guts to be here. And Mr. Alcelay, thank you for the white helmets and your leadership. But we have to hold these people accountable, and we have to stop the killing. Um, you mentioned clearing the skies. There were some of us who supported a no-fly zone in Syria that would have saved thousands of lives heretofore. The Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act um, became law in December. I agree with Senator Menendez. We need to Im implement that. I want to ask both of you, Mr. Al-Saleh and, and Al-Sagray, what, what can we do to help hold these people accountable? Um, Assad, Russia, UAE is now uh, recognizing them. Um, these are things the U.S. can have influence on. We're not walking away. None of us want to walk away from Syria and our responsibility in that part of the world. The UN in 2016 created the, uh, the General Assembly, the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism. Tell us your personal opinions about what we need to do now to help make this end and help hold these people accountable. Omar. Thank you, Senator. I think before we think about holding al-Assad or Russia or Iran accountable, we have to stop them because it's like it's still going on in Syria, people dying every day. And I still like when I get in contact with any 
person who been who been newly released. He tells me like torture is like unlimited. Starvation is horrible. So we have to stop them. And if not, the U.S., the leader of the free world, speak up for these people or like take an action by by. I know I know the U.S. is maybe have have doesn't have a great relation with Turkey. Europe doesn't have it. But if we were going to support Turkey, we support Turkey for the Syrian people, not for Turkey itself. And right now, it feels like the only scenario the U.S. can do because there is no, there is no attention to, to send any troops, and I understand that. It's, maybe it's not a good idea at all. But we, the U.S. Has, has their own allies in Syria. They can support them. You have the NATO allies. You can support them in providing humanitarian assistance and, and stopping the killing. And what's Turkey, like a lot of Syrians talking about how much they like what Turkey is doing, even if Turkey is like coming inside their countries, but the only way to survive, the only way to be protected. These people want to be, to be protected in any way on earth. Doesn't matter who protect us, just protect us. Israel, the US, just protect us. Holding al-Assad accountable, there is no war on earth being as documented in the Syrian war. I even have a video of my father being killed, filmed by the soldiers who made that. I have my, my brother's pictures. And to just to make it clear, my father is, looks like any other human being on earth. He's normal dad. I loved him. He loved me and my brothers as well. So there is evidence of them being killed. And there is now we have five legal cases, prosecutions against the war crimes in Syria. And it's in Germany, in Spain, in France, in Norway, in Sweden. We have to support these cases. And we have to start one here in the United States. Because it's like the United States have more power than Europe in doing any prosecutions. And Germany just two days ago started their prosecutions. They brought two, two guys who have been arrested just to, to court. They're going to start now. And the U.S. still kind of not doing enough when it comes to prosecutions. I don't think Germany have more, more ability to do that than the U.S., but the U.S. is waiting for something. I don't know what. I'm not the expert. I don't know what's going on. But it's still, the U.S. can do more than what I'm doing right now. And really bad hunt. But I don't know what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I mean oh, one, I know I have 17 seconds. I will try to make it possible. But when I was in branch 215, one of the branches spent two, almost two years there. The guards used every day to come, and in a period of time, to come every day and ask for somebody who speaks English. They take this person to the sixth floor, translate to some people who only speak English. And there was prisoners used to translate. I was working in the isolation rooms that that room, where these dead bodies, if you look straight behind you, this girl, there's a paper and number in his head. I was writing these numbers. I was like tasked from the guard to write these numbers before Caesar take the pictures. They were using people to go up to translate. This person who translates, translates only once. And killed, go to the isolation room. I saw this person like going to the sex room and die. Then and second person die. Then I understood there is, there is international prisoners, which include Americans. And so Syrians translated dying for the Americans. Americans should do something to protect these people there. And there is Americans in Syrians' prisons. If you don't care about... If somebody doesn't care about what's going on for Syrians, there is Americans. And Laila Shwekani just died, and we didn't know what happened to Majid Kamal Maz, American citizen. 
we have to do anything in our, the U.S. had to do anything in their power. I start to speak like I'm an American. But like I feel, I'm, I'm, I feel it's amazing we can host this, this, this testimony, but it's time for action too. Thank you. Go ahead. Since the Russians intervened in 2015, they have used the veto 24 times in the Security Council. The first thing that the United States and the international community needs to do is to take all of the conversations for the future of Syria and for the Syrian, for uh, saving the Syrian people out of the Security Council. Because in the Security Council, everything gets vetoed by the Russians. Even the issue of delivering assistance to people who are in desperate need uh, across the borders has been vetoed last month by the Russian government. Russia vetoes anything that just merely condemns the war crimes that are being committed by the Assad regime or by Russia. Um, and this we saw in 2017, the Russians used seven vetoes just to stop the work of the Joint Investigative Mechanism, which confirmed the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime in Syria. And in 90 days, there will be another vote at the Security Council just for the delivery of assistance, for the delivery of a bite of food to eat, assistance which is being delivered not by Russia, is assistance that is being delivered because of the United States and Europe support to the UN, but this assistance will be debated in the Security Council and can be compromised by the Russian veto. And allow me to say that if Russia uses its veto and stops the delivery of humanitarian assistance across the border, then all of the U.S. funding to the U.N., will be in direct support of the criminal Assad regime and the Iranian militias. Thank you, you Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Perdue. Senator Shaheen. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you both very much for being here. I can't add much to the eloquence of Senator Menendez in talking about the fact that anything we say pales by comparison to what 
the two of you have experienced and seen. But I do want to ask some questions because I think it helps me be able to better witness to um, people who we want to respond to this crisis. So uh, this is probably for you, Mr. Alsala. Critics of the Turkish-Russian ceasefire in Idlib argue that the agreement will solidify the territorial gains that have been made by Assad, and yet they do nothing to address the humanitarian crisis or to protect the millions of refugees. So can you talk about what you believe will happen if, first of all, will that ceasefire hold? And second, what will happen to the Syrians who are currently in Idlib if Assad and the Russians and Iranians are successful? We've been warning of the humanitarian crisis which will result in Idlib back uh, since 2015 before the Sochi agreement. And we know that Russia never abides by any ceasefire that they sign in Syria. This ceasefire will end the same way that every other ceasefire has ended in Syria. The ceasefires are simply a tool that is used by the Russians and the regime in order to reorganize the situation on the ground, change the deployment of forces, and to be able to, at a later date, resume the uh, unimpeded bombardment of civilians. Turkey took a very bold step in intervening uh, to stop the assault on civilians in Idlib, uh, but it is unable to enforce a civilian protection mechanism on its own. Uh, that is the words of the Turkish government. That's not my analysis. Turkey has asked the international community, the United States and NATO, for more support uh, to support its efforts in northwest Syria. And it's something that we have been asking for for many years for a no-fly zone and for civilian protection. <laughs> In, 60, in just 60 days, one million people were forced out of their homes and displaced by the latest offensive, and there are still 200,000 who are without any shelter. So if, 
if that is the scale of the crisis that we've seen so far, it is impossible for us to even imagine what would happen if, as you said, the Assad regime was successful in retaking all of Idlib. The crisis would be of an unimaginable scale. And for that reason, before we talk about uh, sending more humanitarian assistance to those who have been displaced most recently, we need to stop the ongoing offensive and re restore the, uh, return the Assad regime's forces back to the lines where they were in 2018 so that those civilians who have been displaced can return to their homes. <laughs> عن التلاعب في المصطلحات بقراراتها لتطبيق القرار 2254 حسب ما منصوص حسب ما ما مكتوب بشكل دقيق ضمن القرار. And after that, we need to go back to the UN and force the UN to um, to apply the correct interpretation of UN Security Council Resolution 2254, which has been uh, mis uh, misinterpreted because of the pressure from the Russian government. اللجنة الدستورية هي لن تكون حل لما يحصل في سوريا ولم يكون في يوم من الأيام الشعب السوري لديه مشكلة في الدستور وإنما كانت دائما مشكلته بمن يطبق الدستور. The Constitutional Committee, which has come out of uh, the 2254 resolution, um, is not a solution for the crisis in Syria. The Syrian people never uh, went to the streets or called for a new constitution. The problem in Syria is not with the constitution, it is with who is implementing the constitution. <laughs> The solution for Syria is a stop to all of the hostilities, accountability for all those who have committed war crimes, and a, uh, and a tra governing, transitional governing body uh, which can allow the Syrians who have been displaced from their homes to be able to return to their homes safely. So, we don't want to see Bashar al-Assad in, in the next year receiving a Nobel Peace Prize because after all of that he has committed, he signs, simply signs a peace agreement with the opposition. I, I can't imagine anyone <laughs> in the civilized world who would believe that Assad should be the recipient of any kind of prize for any peace because all he has done is commit crimes against his own people. And he should be held accountable for that. And I, I believe this committee will do everything we can to try and support that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Sheen. Thank you to our witnesses. A, a sincere thank you. Brave people uh, given us a lot to think about. Uh, your testimony here today is going to be uh, become very public in the world. And uh, Thank you for your bravery and thank you for coming here today. For the members of the committee, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday. With that, the committee is adjourned.